Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that blind people can hear what faces look like. Now, if that sounds a little weird, let me tell you why. When blind people use a device that produces different sounds when it crosses different curves and planes, uh, the same part of their brain lights up as you use for seeing people's faces. So blind people can create mental images of everything they hear, and those images are thought to be very similar to what you or I see in our peripheral vision. This is a pretty amazing thing you can do with neuroplasticity, but the, the mind will find a way. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is a professor of psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's the author of the number one international bestseller, The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life, A Holistic Approach to Optimizing Brain Health. Now, already you can tell there's got to be a reason that he's on the show. And the reason is, well, we're talking about brain upgrades. How could I not talk with him? And his name is... Brant Courtright. Brant, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're a really interesting guy because you look at brain health and neuroscience, but you also look at therapy. How did you get into mixing those things together? Because usually you get like sort of the softer therapy side or you get the harder, like I dissect rat brains kind of side, but you've, you're neither one of those purely. How'd you do this? Yeah, that's right. I got into this really through consciousness and through really a kind of a psycho-spiritual approach to psychology. And so really looking at every level of our consciousness, mind, body, heart, spirit. And although I've really been focused on psychotherapy for many t- long time and also meditation, I've come to the conclusion that I actually have underestimated the role of the body and particularly yeah. the brain. And that the quality of our consciousness is intimately tied to the quality of our brain and vice versa. And so it turns out there's been a lot of very recent neuroscience stuff looking at how some of these soft things have a huge impact on our brain. So 
particularly this discovery of neurogenesis has been, I think, a real game changer in terms of looking at brain health and the whole quality of our life. What is neurogenesis, the way we're talking about it? Good. So neurogenesis is the process of making new brain cells, the birth of new brain cells. It's the generation of new neurons. And it used to be thought that the brain stopped growing, stopped making new brain cells, once we were in our early 20s or so. And after that, it was just one slow die-off. Now, hold on. You, you went to UC Santa Cruz, so you were still killing brain cells in your 20s, as far as I understand, right? Uh, well, psychedelics, <laughs> I don't think they totally killed them. But, uh... Fair point. Not just beer. <laughs> so so but that's been disproven. And, and that was only a recent time when we understood that neurogenesis happened, right? How recently was it when we figured that that's out? That's right. The late 1990s, they discovered yeah. that actually we make new brain cells throughout our entire lifetime. <laughs> and they didn't know what the meaning of this was until just a few years ago. So it turns out that your rate of neurogenesis is probably the most important biomarker for brain health that <laughs> yes. most people have never heard of. So a low rate of neurogenesis, that is a low rate at which the brain is making new brain cells, is associated with cognitive decline, with memory problems, with anxiety, with stress, and with depression, even lowered immunity. And a high rate of neurogenesis that is a high rate at which the brain is making new brain cells, is associated with the opposite, with cognitive enhancement, with rapid learning, rapid problem solving, and with robust emotional resilience, and with protection against stress, anxiety, and depression. And it turns out that just about everybody can increase their rate of neurogenesis by about five times probably even more than that, because some of the science is lagging behind. And this difference in the rate of neurogenesis has a profound effect on the quality of our life. So the, the reason that I, I was so excited to have you on as, as a guest is that there are hundreds of thousands of people listening to this right now. Most of them are interested in, in increasing their performance in one way or another, not just you know athletic performance or at work, but basically when you can perform better at whatever you want to do, if what you want to do right now is sleep, then you'll have better performing sleep. Like, like it's about doing what is better. But the impact of what you just said, five times better ability to lay down new brain cells when you need them, five times more brain plasticity, that's not a little change. That is game changing. That means one unit of meditation, if you're trying to learn to meditate, means you can have five times more changes in the brain for the same amount of work. Now I'm lazy very lazy. And I would rather get more out of one minute of meditation than less. And I think everyone listening would too. And, and so tell me more about this five times. What do I have to do to get five times more neurogenesis for whatever I'm doing, whether it's any kind of training or just whatever? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. So let me tell you about one experiment they did. They took mice and they gave them really a holistic treatment. The approach of this book, it's a holistic approach to brain health, right? Body, heart, mind, spirit. So they gave these mice a holistic treatment. They didn't call it that, that's my word for it. They called it an enriched environment. So they gave them a good diet. They gave them running wheels to exercise on. They gave them lots of novel environments to explore, nesting materials, a lot of other friendly mice to play with and meet with. And they found out that they increased their rate of neurogenesis by five times and that the part of the brain that grows new brain cells, the hippocampus, was one-sixth bigger. Now, that's a lot of computing power. And these mice had big cognitive advantages over their normal neurogenesis rate peers. And they had big emotional advantages as well. Again, big protection from stress, anxiety, and depression. So... It turns out it's the whole picture, it's all of it together that works, that body, heart, mind, spirit, by stimulating the brain in all of these ways, they all work together synergistically, much more powerfully than if we just do one at a time. Oh, this, this is something that we can focus on here. There are a huge number of people, including me, because I come from like a Western scientific background, computer science, information systems, artificial intelligence, decision support, and you're supposed to only test one variable at a time. 
-hmm. Like, aren't you violating science with a capital S? Well, they've done both. They've half tested <laughs> one thing at a time. Yeah. And then they've compared that with testing a few things at a time. So, for example, eating a particular food or, or, or running, for example, the brain will explode with new brain cells. It's a very powerful um, neurogenesis increaser. However, about half of those new brain cells die off pretty quickly. The brain prunes them pretty quickly. Unless you do other things, such as eat other kinds of foods, whose function is to increase the survival of new neurons. So there might be synergies between these things and testing only yes. one at a time. It's like baking bread, right? If I was going to bake the flour and I was going to bake the water and nothing ever happens. But if you mix them and then you bake them, magically you get bread. Is that more the model yeah. that we're going down for the brand? That's it. That's okay. it exactly. That doing one thing is better than nothing, but doing several things, working at it from all these different perspectives, yeah. has this synergistic effect. Yes. So that you get then close to 100% survival rate of these new brain cells. Okay, tell me these foods. <laughs> I've got to know. <laughs> okay, so there's a chapter in the book on body and all the physical things we can do. There's a chapter in the book on the heart and emotional factors in this. There's a chapter on mind and mental exercises and mental things we can do. And there's a chapter on spirit and spiritual practices that also have an effect on this. But there's, a, there's one chapter just on diet because diet is one of the most important dimensions of all this. So, you know, if you want to build a beautiful high-end house, you have to use high-quality materials, right? You can't <laughs> use rotting wood or decaying wood. You use high-quality lumber, and it's the same with the brain. We need to use high-quality building materials. So I think of this as really a two-fold strategy. One is to decrease things that are neurotoxic and slow down the rate of neurogenesis. <laughs> and the other is to increase those foods and activities that accelerate our rate of neurogenesis. Otherwise, it's like stepping on the brake and the accelerator yeah. at the same time. What are the neurotoxins that we should avoid? Good question, because we live in a really neurotoxic world. And we haven't known this until just the last few years. It's like we've all stumbled into this innocently, mm -hmm. right? 200,000 years ago, the brain got its this, this size of human beings and homo sapiens. And it's just been kind of random development up until now. We didn't even know that individual brain cells existed until 100 years ago. So what increases the rate of neurogenesis and what decreases it, these are brand new things, like the yeah. past five, 10 years. I mean, this Very is new. so new that most neuroscientists don't even know this. And I mean, one of the reasons for writing this book was I've always felt like psychology is too important to be left to psychologists. Everybody <laughs> needs to know about it. That's a great quote. <laughs> and it's the same with neuroscience. Neuroscience yeah. is too important to be left to the neuroscientists. Everybody needs to know this stuff. So two things that really decrease the rate of neurogenesis are bad, unhealthy fats. Yes. And sugar and carbohydrates. Now, I know you know this from Bulletproof Diet. Um, the government guidelines around diet from the 60s on has been just the opposite, right? It's been low yeah. fat and high carbohydrate. And we now know this is the exact opposite of what we need and that this original diet was based on not only bad science by Ansel Keys, but it was also based on failing to distinguish between good healthy fats and bad unhealthy fats. Yep. And bad, unhealthy fats are essentially oxidized fats. Trans fats, of course, but basically oxidized fats. Which means heat, light, or air, heat, right? Right, exactly right. Exactly right. Where they go rancid. And so when those oxidized fats get into your bloodstream, when they're absorbed, what they do is they oxidize the cholesterol in your bloodstream. And that oxidized cholesterol produces heart disease, produces atherosclerosis, and it produces inflammation. 
and inflammation is one of the things that just slows neurogenesis to a crawl. When is the last time you ate fried food at a restaurant? Um, it was a couple years ago at this point. When, <laughs> okay. I, when I started researching this book, I mean, I hate to say this, I used to love fish and chips. I just used to <laughs> it love tastes, it. It tastes good, yeah. but man, for yeah. the brain, no way. <laughs> I think I still love it, but I, I don't let myself eat that stuff anymore. Yeah. Right. So we don't want to cook with vegetable oils, right? Mm, very we important. Want, you know, we want to cook coconut oil, butter, ghee, lard, tallow. Um, we want to avoid cooking, as you're saying, fried foods. Um, and instead, we want healthy fats. So that means avocados, nuts, grass-fed beef, pastured chicken, wild-caught fish, um, pastured eggs and dairy. Um, I'd, I'd say we have some agreement on the healthy fat sources. Those are all at the high end on the Bulletproof roadmap. And, perfect. And it's... It's interesting because you're one of the, the few researchers I've come across with a, a good academic background who also talks about the spiritual effect of this. So you, you talk about body, mind, and, and spirit as, as well. And so where do you feel at first? Let, let's say you eat some of these neurotoxic oxidized fats, as say mm -hmm. corn oil, uh, canola oil, soybean oil. Uh, you, you go out, you have your fried onion rings or whatever uh, at a restaurant that's been frying in that same fat maybe for days, so it's entirely oxidized. So where, where do you feel at first? It, is it a, like physical? Is it, is it like mental? Is, is, it, is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Like, like what happens first? Where, where do you perceive this? That's a good question. It probably depends on each person and kind of okay. where the vulnerabilities are in their system. But certainly it goes into your bloodstream first. And that, as it creates inflammation in your bloodstream, what inflammation does is it chews up the inside of your blood vessels. Right? We, we need to be able to mount a healthy inflammatory response, but it's chronic inflammation that's the problem. That chews up the inside of the blood vessels, and the brain gets 20% of the blood. So to have a good brain, you need to have a good cardiovascular system as well. So that begins to degrade the brain right there. So some people will probably feel that emotionally. Some people will begin to feel it cognitively. Some people will feel it spiritually, other people will feel it physically. Some probably all, all of those in different degrees. I think it probably just depends on each person. Depends on each person. You know, the other big problem in terms of food is sugar and carbohydrate. A high sugar diet will cut your rate of neurogenesis in two. Okay, let, uh, this is really important. This is huge. So for people sitting at work, listening to Bulletproof Radio, eating just one of those little sugar candies from someone's desk because they had food cravings, how much sugar are we talking about? Um, it depends on how insulin resistant the person is. So right now it looks like about 80% of the American population is insulin resistant to some degree, and some degree of glucose tolerance. That means they have higher levels of insulin than is healthy. And higher levels of insulin are toxic to every organ of the body. They have higher levels of glucose than is optimal. And glucose pre produces glycation end products. It produces glycation. It's, it's a form of accelerated aging. That also degrades every organ in the body. And, and fructose makes that worse than was fruit sugar or yeah. high fructose corn syrup. Is, is worse than regular sugar for that, okay? That's right. So a good test for everybody to do when they get their yearly physical is called the hemoglobin A1C. And that's like a snapshot of your blood sugar levels over the last three months. And if it's at all elevated, you'd be well advised to get on a very carbohydrate-restricted diet in order to increase your insulin sensitivity and bring your blood sugar down. Because you can track cognitive decline and blood sugar levels just about perfectly. That's alarming. It's interesting, I have a, a machine here at Bulletproof Labs, uh, one of the, the human hacking pieces of equipment. HbA1c uh, is, is a really important metric for a lot of reasons. And if you have prediabetes or diabetes or insulin resistant, if you start using, say, metformin, the diabetes drug, you get a 1% improvement. If you start exercising, you get another percent. So you get 2% from diet and drugs, 
if you use this machine for 10 minutes a week, it causes an 8.2% improvement in HbA1c. So it's not just it's not just exercise. It's not just diet. It's not just drugs. It's the specific type of exercise has profound effects on a market like that. So these are hackable, and just no one out there that I've come across has, has put together like this holistic thing. And you've definitely started looking at this at, in a holistic way. And and certainly we we share a lot of belief systems around this. And and I want to figure out where we have some differences so we can talk about those. But we'll we'll get there as we interview. But the idea that what if ten minutes a week of weird exercise could do something that six hours a week of exercise couldn't do? Yeah. I, I think there's there's hundreds of things like that out there that haven't been discovered or popularized. And, and Absolutely, yeah. The science is just it's just emerging around all of this. So um, the book goes into like twenty five or thirty different nutrients that increase our rate of neurogenesis. So a big one of these are omega-3 fatty acids. So omega-3s are made up of ALA, EPA, and DHA. And DHA is the most important by far for the brain. So the brain is made up of about two-thirds fat. And of that, one-third of that fat is DHA. So they did an experiment where they raised monkeys on a low omega-3 diet, and they raised another group of monkeys on a high omega-3 diet, and then they looked at their brains. And the monkeys on the low omega-3 diet had very simple, undifferentiated brains. And the monkeys on the high omega-3 diet had very complex, richly differentiated brains, almost like human beings that omega-3s seem to be tied in evolutionarily to the development of a larger brain in human beings, the eating of fish. So we want to have a diet that is high in omega-3s. Probably most people could stand to take five, four or five grams a day of omega-3s that are high in DHA, high DHA content, and also are molecularly distilled. Otherwise, we're likely to get mercury, and mercury is one of the most potent neurotoxins known. Outside of plutonium, I think it's the most potent neurotoxin there is. There's, there's some questions, though, because we talked about rancid and oxidized oils, and a lot of the fish oil on the market is not well-packaged or well-prepared, even if it's molecularly distilled, and it's actually rancid when you take it. This, this is something that I've been looking into for years, and that if you look at people who are taking excessive amounts of omega-3, like they don't look so good, and oftentimes it's a quality issue, and sometimes it's just too much of it. So how, how much is too much, and how do you know if you're getting good omega-3s? Um, well, generally, you can taste it. You can smell it. If it's rancid, you, you can tell immediately. Um, Life Extension makes a pretty good one, and they've got pretty good quality control. Um, there's a few out from Nordic Naturals that I think are pretty good. Um, but you're right, if you've had them for too long, even though they're in a capsule and therefore prevented, you know, oxida oxidation is probably not going to happen too quickly, um, still over time they do yeah. go bad. And, and I, I see people all the time, you know, that the bottles are kind of dark, but they aren't fully dark. If you put it on the windowsill, <laughs> that's a waste of money because light still penetrates and the stuff is light sensitive as well. So I, I tend to keep mine in the fridge or at least on the table if it's a bottle that, that I'm using. But if I buy five bottles at a time, I'll keep it in the fridge because I really, really believe that oxidized omega-3s are particularly bad. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes, yes. Okay, what, what um, about vegetarian omega-3? What are the... That's an interesting question. So a lot of people say take flax oil mm -hmm. or chia seed. And it turns out that doesn't work. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, vegans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So trying to increase, it's like so little gets converted to DHA. It, it's That's about, strictly the ALA form. It, and something like 5% or less. I think it's, it's one. gets converted. It's a 43 to 1 ratio. So like 1 43rd of it gets converted from memory. And it, it's almost none. So you have to eat like a hundred grams of flax oil to get like one, uh, one or two grams of the equivalent from fish oil, and you will not look good if you eat that much ALA. Yeah, they've they've actually looked at people who have tried to increase their DHA levels through uh, flax oil, and it's not been successful. Yeah. However, if you're vegetarian, there's a new form of algae, mm -hmm. algae derived, 
which is EPA, and that does convert to DHA. Right. So if you're a vegetarian, you, you have to get the algae form of omega-3s, and that will convert, that actually will raise the blood level of DHA. That is but better is fish oil, for sure. Yeah, and, and uh, I also use krill oil, which is my preferred source of it, but it's, it's one of those things where, okay, we're talking about all these cool things you do for your brain, and now we're not only talking about the type of fat, we're talking about the source of the type of fat, but we're doing that because it seems to make a big difference for how our brains work, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. That's right. Okay. You know, they looked at people who ate fish one to three times a week, and they found out they had 14% more gray matter in the higher processing centers of their brain, unless they ate fried fish, in which case <laughs> there was no difference between them and normals. So wow. yeah, how it's cooked and the source is important. Did, did, so you call the people who don't eat fish normals? <laughs> is that like, is like a psychologist no, no, people term? had just normal brain um, function. I thought I heard muggles in there somewhere. I was just checking. <laughs> you know, I think we probably, at this point, most people are using 70 or 80% of their brain capacity. You know, we live in such a neurotoxic world. Yeah. And there are so many things we could do that we aren't, that most people are operating what we think of as normal. Yeah. It's fine for getting by in everyday life. What we think of as a healthy brain is actually a brain that is well below yes. what's possible. Well below. And, and for some reason, we get used to that. We're not very good as a species at, at seeing the possible things there. And uh, one of the, the things that I recommend is you know, slam some healthy fats into, uh, into your brain and, and just like feel for one day, oh, whoa, this is what I'm capable of. And, and that's frankly why I opened the Bulletproof Coffee Shop. Is I wanted people who hadn't done that. Because if you just feel 20% better in one day, you're like, wait a minute, I want that 20% every day. So now I have to make other changes in my life, whether it's sleep quality, it's changing exercise or relationships, I don't know. But at least feel it once. Is there a way that you recommend if, if someone wants to come in tomorrow and say, look, I, I want to see how good my brain can really feel? Like, what would you tell them to do so they could just feel the difference as fast as possible, even if it's not sustainable? Um, my own sense is that for most people, to have a, a, an ongoing sense of this, it takes a couple of months. And the reason oh, it takes a couple okay. of months is because it takes that long, it takes between four and six and eight weeks for new brain cells to mature and come online. So that's why, for example, antidepressants take four to six to eight weeks to work, right? It used to be believed that antidepressants worked through increasing your level of serotonin, right? There's this whole serotonin deficiency theory that um, causes depression. Turns out that theory is wrong and the pharmaceutical companies know it's wrong, but the way the antidepressants work is that they increase our rate of neurogenesis. Interesting. And and all that when you take a antidepressant, your serotonin levels go sky high within a few hours. But there's no change in mood for four to six weeks. That's because it takes four to six to eight weeks for new brain cells to mature, get integrated into the, into the existing circuitry and to fully come online. So, so then that, that means I have to ask what will be an unpopular question, but does that imply that maybe I should go on a, an occasional course of antidepressants just so I can get more brain cells and then just go off of them when I'm done? Well, you know, that's very interesting because... <laughs> I, by the way, I've never done that. I don't advocate yeah, it, yeah, but I'm yeah. starting to think maybe I, maybe I should just do a little quick hit of Wellbutrin every now and then as a smart drug. Like, well, <laughs> I've never heard think, this before, but... Yeah, so... Yeah, this is this is how the attention really got put on neurogenesis. They discovered that the way antidepressants work is through increasing our rate of neurogenesis, and that a low rate of neurogenesis is what is involved in depression. So it turns out, though, that antidepressants, first of all, they only work in less than 50% of the people who take them. And they come with a slew of side effects. For example, um, loss of libido, most people experience. Uh, loss of sex drive. And that's depressing in itself. Um, they're also, they, they create um, less serotonin receptors in the neurons. So you become more and more dependent upon them. So the, the side effects are not great, but there are many, many natural substances which also increase our rate of neurogenesis. 
and without side effects. There are a number of studies that show that omega-3 fatty acids at about six grams a day is actually more effective than SSRIs, than Prozac, than antidepressants for, for uh, working with depression, but with none of the side effects. And that would be if you also stop eating fried stuff and inflammatory fats at the same time, I'm guessing? Like this, the synergistic thing applies there? That's right. Okay. We want to do as much of this as possible. So again, the book goes into 25 or 30 of these nutrients. Omega-3s is one of them. If you do omega-3s, you'll increase the rate of neurogenesis by 40%. That's quite a bit. However, many of those new brain cells die off pretty quickly, unless you do other things. For example, hesperidin. Hesperidin is a bioflavonoid that mm -hmm. appears in citrus fruits. And its main function is to keep new neurons alive, baby neurons alive. So... Um, Green tea is another one. Green tea, the extract of green tea, um, the ECGCs, make, um, they're not only antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, but they also are like miracle grow for brain cells. So, people make fun of me because I take like an entire handful, as much as I can hold in a handful of supplements. I take about one to two of those in total a day. Uh, I, it depends on what day and what I'm taking, but I, I'll do north of 100, uh, north of 100 capsules, especially when I travel or if I'm under more environmental stress, which increases oxidation. But you can feel a difference in how your brain works when you do things that protect the brain cells so they don't die off like that. Like I, I am a different person because I do that sort of stuff. And you're, uh, you're naming some of the things I take, and you know, there's lots of others. And, um, Good. Uh, yeah. And you have quercetin, other ones listed in your book. Quercetin. Quercetin. Okay. Apigenin. Luteolin. Mm -hmm. Some things that aren't so well known. Um, ginseng. Bioflavonoids are critically important. Rutin, I'm guessing, is in that list. Um, rutin, oh. I think, is one of those things that may increase BDNF, but it hasn't yet been confirmed that it increases uh, neurogenesis. But it may. It, so it, it, it's fascinating. And I don't think that there's a case for most people to take all of these things. I, I'm like all into the synergy thing. I find that stacking things works really, really well. So that's what I do and I do it when I formulate stuff. But for my own things, like look, if there's evidence that it's gonna do this and it's probably gonna help other systems, I'm willing to go to the trouble and inconvenience of opening another bottle and putting another capsule in the stack of things I'm gonna swallow because I get such a big change in my life from it. Otherwise, I, I'm kind of lazy, I, I'm an anti-aging guy. Uh, yeah, absolutely, why not? I mean. Um, what's the downside? Uh, I might have expensive pee. And in fact, I think I might have been quoted as having the most expensive pee on the planet. At least that's my goal. I, like I, I'm, I'm okay to filter out the extra vitamins that my body doesn't take as long as the filtering process isn't hard in the liver and kidneys. It turns out it's protective of the liver and kidneys for most of the substances. Yeah, what, what about one antidepressant that's been used for dendritic sprouting? Uh, dendrites are neurons in the brain for people listening uh, and this is something I've used for many years. It's Depranil. It's a, a mild uh, MAO inhibitor, a, a formerly used at high doses as an antidepressant, used by anti-aging people for at least 20 years as a smart drug. And you take a very small dose of this stuff, and it, it affects cognitive function. Uh, have you, yeah. Did you write about this? Have you experimented with it, or are you familiar with the research? Yeah, only a little bit of the research. I didn't go into that because I didn't go into any... Um, drugs or medications okay. that increase neurogenesis, other than the antidepressants. The antidepressants, you know, so neurogenesis happens in the hippocampus, this one part of the brain. And the hippocampus is this interesting structure. It's like a crescent moon or a curled silkworm. And one end of it is involved in emotion regulation, particularly the emotions of stress, anxiety, and depression. And the other end of it is involved in cognition, in memory processing, and in spatial relationships in the body. So it turns out that SSRIs and all the antidepressants only increase neurogenesis along the emotional side of the hippocampus. So you don't get a cognitive boost uh. from antidepressants because it doesn't increase neurogenesis along that axis. So that's another reason why we want to do a lot of different things because some things increase it on one end, some on the other end. A few things increase the entire length, but we want the entire length to have a high rate of neurogenesis. 
Now, the, the timing of these things seems to matter. My first book is called The Better Baby Book, and it was, what are all the things you can do to have smarter, healthier kids, uh, hopefully without autism, which is a, a particular concern uh, for, uh, for my wife and I. And it, it, what we did definitely seemed to work, and there was lots of research behind it, but my belief is that you have the most leverage really at around the, the first trimester, even like before conception, removing the neurotoxins you talked about, making sure the healthy fats are in place. And, and then if you get that stuff right, when the brain is growing, you have the most neurogenesis happening because the brain is really only two cells and it keeps growing and growing. So is it more important for a pregnant woman to eat the, the way you're talking about in your diet or more important for someone who's you know 20 or 70? Like, like when, when did the benefits hit you the most? Great question. Um, it turns out that the baby's rate of neurogenesis depends on the mother's rate of neurogenesis. Ah, that old so mother's mother, thing. <laughs> so if the mother has a high rate of neurogenesis, the baby will have a high rate of neurogenesis. And it also works in terms of, because you're right, the first two years is when 90% of brain growth happens. And that first nine months in utero is incredibly important. So there's also been research to show that the mother's level of stress has a big effect on the shape of the brain of the baby. So, you know, we've got these three brains, right? The uh, reptilian brainstem that runs the body, the mammalian limbic system responsible for emotion, and the neocortex, which in humans is the most developed abstract thought language. Well, it turns out that if the mother is stressed or anxious during the pregnancy, she gives birth to a baby with an enlarged reptilian brain and a smaller neocortex. Whereas if the mother is at peace, she feels safe during the pregnancy, she gives birth to a normal baby with a large neocortex and normal-sized everything else. So children like this begin life at a big neural disadvantage. And this also continues for the first few years. If the mother is stressed, the child, it's almost like the survival circuits get activated and the higher processing centers don't have a chance to develop. It's like survival has to be insured first. So this is one of those things that I think should be on the front page of the New York Times. It's just incredible the effect that it has on the child. One of the things that drives me nuts is I, I came to this realization a, a while ago. We restored uh, my wife, who's a, a physician. Um, we restored her fertility. We had two, two children around age 40 without fertility assistance when she was infertile <laughs> before that. And I, I came to the same realization as you. I wrote a book, Wiley published it, and I think we sold about 8,000 copies. And the Bulletproof Diet is, is sold north of 100,000 copies with a lot of the similar knowledge in it, but it, for some reason, I, I don't know what it is, but it, it's it's like as a species, what's going to happen in 20 years is really hard to use it to take action on us today. And the idea is, is you're going to have a, a, a child 20 years from now if you take your extra omega-3s when you're pregnant, a child who's who's smarter or healthier or more equipped to deal with the world or just better off in, in all the ways a person can be better off. But connecting those dots is just hard for us. It, it, do you have any advice for, for people who are, are struggling with the decision about, you know, do I, do I invest in stress reduction or nutrition early on in life? Like, like which is more important? Like, like, like share some knowledge here. <laughs> it, it's all important. That, that's the thing. It's like, we want to reduce stress and we want to increase those omega-3s. Certainly for a pregnant woman, taking extra omega-3s seems hugely important. Making Very. Sure there's a lot of DHA in the diet. That just to give that growing brain a lot of basic building blocks, for sure. And it makes for more complexity, like in these monkey experiments, right? Complexity is good when it comes to the brain. We want to see complexity. Um, but, you know, at any time, this can also happen. If you're in your 20s or 30s, you can also increase your rate of neurogenesis by five times. Okay. Or your 40s or your 50s. In fact, in old age you can increase your rate of neurogenesis by three to five times. And that was before they discovered that many of these nutrients increase the rate of neurogenesis. So the science is still behind this. Maybe you can increase it eight times, maybe 10 times. It's like, we don't know yeah. what optimal brain functioning looks like right now. We're on the verge of a neuro revolution. 
If you think about what would happen if, if the, there are synergies here, and, and there are certainly anti-synergies and toxins where they amplify each other, and there's synergies and techniques like this. So let's say that meditation and stress reduction and mindfulness gives you some bonus points here. Exercise, some flavors more than others, give you some other bonus points. And then having the right nutrients, I'd say the right foods, and then the right nutrients on top of that, and maybe even the right pharmaceuticals. So some of these, okay, if this doubles it and this triples it, well, together do you get a six times advantage? Like you said, no one's ever measured this. But whatever it is, when you're dealing with orders of magnitude improvements in your ability to lay down new brain cells, new brain cells are there as a repair mechanism to keep you from declining with age and as a performance amplification mechanism to normally enhance your survival. So we're cheating, like, like we're hacking that system to say, you know what, if the normal, in the normal course of human nutrition and stress, we're gonna double the number of these cells, but then half of them are gonna die, and we change that to say we're gonna double and then triple the number of cells, and we're not gonna let them die, all of a sudden you're like, wait, my brain is fundamentally different than it was before. And when people do this, what types of things do they experience in that whole range of things? You talk about body, mind, and spirit. So walk me through what happens if, if someone has a lot more brain cells. Like, like what gets easier? Um, everything gets easier. Life is like when yeah. you're living on a higher level, everything is easier. Again, if you're doing some kind of spiritual practice, that seems to have a quite robust effect on our rate of neurogenesis. Um, there's mental factors as well. There's emotional factors like, like stress, for example slows down the rate of neurogenesis, chronic stress. Yep. Um, although, you know, you know, there's two types of stress here, sort of like fats. Mm-hmm. There's good stress <laughs> and there's bad stress. And good stress is short-term and moderate. And that makes us stronger. That's yeah. a challenge to us. It's like it brings forth new capacities. We need a certain amount of stress. If we don't have stress, then we're just floppy. You know, it's sort of like exercising. When you're pumping iron, you're stressing the muscle, but then you stop, it breaks down, and it builds up even stronger. And so it's the same with short-term stress. When we get a break from it, or if it's a moderate stress, that helps us become who we are more, and that increases the rate of neurogenesis. But that's not the kind of stress most people suffer from. Most people suffer from chronic stress, that is, and, and extreme stress. And extreme stress can actually shrink the hippocampus, kill brain cells. That is neurotoxic. Um, Being always online, always available, 24-7, email. Is the the work project okay at work? Am I available? It's like, am I going to have a job? Am I going to have enough money? It's like, that kind of stress slows down the rate of neurogenesis. And it eventually also creates heart disease, diabetes, um, inflammation, um, all the whole host of diseases of civilization that we see. So we need to have some way of reducing or taking a time out to just let our body relax, whether it's playing games, whether it's walking in nature, whether it's meditation, whether it's exercise of some sort, something to allow the parasympathetic nervous system to come and let us relax, just like, ah to let the body establish a new homeostatic balance. So that's really important. So when we do this, we get, again, every level gets better. And when you're living at a higher level, you go, oh my God, how could I have done that before? When you're living at a lower level, you don't really realize it because it's like the, the instrument that you're using to measure it can't measure it. <laughs> but it takes, it takes energy in the brain and it takes uh, functionality in the brain in order to drive awareness of, oh wow, I wasn't running as well as I could. And the biggest example of this that I've come across is I bring like CEO clients through this program called 40 Years of Zen. It's seven days of intensive neurofeedback training that changes the way your brain works pretty intensively because you're spending hours a day getting feedback directly, electrically. And when I work with those clients on a custom protocol, using the right fats, using things that trigger BDNF, and I'll, they can handle twice the amount of input to the brain before they just hit a wall and like, I, I can't do anymore. There's no, no more results from this. And this is essentially turbo meditation. If, if you want to meditate and you're doing these practices, the meditation becomes easier. 
And the meditation then becomes more effective because it's easier. So you spent less time meditating and you got more benefits, which reduced your stress, which makes more meditation easier if that's what you want to do, or it frees up that stress capacity so you can do something else. So it, it's one of those investments that really gives you a compound return pretty pretty briefly. And, and it's completely changed how I perform and, and what I do because when you have that little excess brain capacity, you can use it to make even more brain capacity. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. That There's a virtuous cycle where you yeah. just get better and better and better. That's right, that's right. It becomes self-reinforcing. It's like when you start living a neuro-healthy lifestyle, you feel better and better, and then you want to feel better and better. You want to do more things to feel better and better. Exactly. Well, you've talked about uh, the side of hormetic stress, or the healthy stressors that make you stronger versus unhealthy chronic stress. And you've touched on exercise, and you mentioned running a little bit earlier. What are your exercise findings in the research you've done? Yeah, that's interesting. So any type of exercise is good for the body. It's all yoga, yeah. weightlifting, aerobic, it's all good. But when it comes to neurogenesis, it looks like the only kind that's effective is aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise is anything that gets you breathing fast and your heart rate up. So running, walking quickly, biking, walking up a mountain, swimming, fast dancing, anything that gets you breathing hard. That is like um, a very potent stimulator of neurogenesis. Any research on sprinting, high intensity interval training versus long distance slogging out the miles? Yeah, they haven't done that research yet. Okay. That's, again, where the research is behind, where probably it would be effective, but we don't know for sure yet. And if we're talking about breathing hard, you could just do pranayama or breathing meditations or just sit there and breathe really hard, right? Well, the idea <laughs> is to also get your heart rate up as well because okay. the oxygen has to really get there. And they think it, it's that both are involved. It's cool. called aerobic, meaning oxygen, but in air. But it also involves your heart rate getting up as well. So- some some of the more transformational technologies or, or meditation technologies I'm I'm aware of are things that are breathing related, like holotropic breathing, uh, which was invented actually as a replacement for LSD, at least yes. invented in a modern sense. It's an old yes. yogic breathing technique. It's one that makes you hallucinate for personal development in a in a controlled setting, uh, and I, I've done it with the inventor Stan Graf. But this is a hyper oxygenation protocol where you sit there and your heart rate does go up and you're basically panting. And is it possible that some of the breathing exercises, uh, there's this whole school of yogic and meditation and all these things with, with breathing, that those may have an effect independent of whether you're walking or pedaling or something? That would be interesting to see. We don't yet know. Don't have research yet. Um, most of the yogic breathing, most pranayama, tends to slow the system down mm-hmm. rather than stimulate it. So unless it's really like the kind of hyperventilating that Graf does, I would think tend to think that that kind of slow breathing would, although it would have an anti-stress effect, which would help, it wouldn't have the robust effect that comes from running. So for, for about five years, I would every, every day do the Art of Living set of breathing exercises. Art of Living is a, a group out of India. There's 20 or 30 million people, including a Nobel laureate, one of the guys who made the Black-Scholes model. I want to, I'm thinking that it was Mr. Black, but I can't remember which one. I actually met him at, at a uh, at an event for this. But this was an interesting set of breathing exercises because they had you do very rapid breathing at one part of the body, then very it's kind of medium and then very slow, and you'd cycle up and down. And I, I used to do this with a group of, of really successful entrepreneurs, and it was, it was fascinating because there was something good happening. Like You, you felt great for days after you, you did the longer series. And if you just spent 10 minutes a day, it was kind of like a reset. So I think there was a parasympathetic effect. But now you have me wondering if, if the breathing also was driving... Uh, my ability to to either maintain or to lay down new brain cells because it caused some shifts that were pretty profound and I don't do it on a daily basis now but I've kind of incorporated breathing into like my awareness so it's something you just kind of always do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I used to do a lot of yoga myself and at this point I just run. Um, okay. In terms of brain. How would you measure? Like like so we have lots of people listening, including mm-hmm. people from Quantified Self who would say, okay, how do I know if I got new, new BDNF or if I got new neurogenesis? Is there a way I could test whether a set of breathing exercises do this? Can I test it at home? Do, what labs do I run? Yeah, um, there isn't any test at this point. The neuroimaging isn't yet good enough to detect this. So a lot of what we've learned, we've learned from animals because you can only really detect it on autopsy. 
And so it's hard to run a lot of these human experiments and uh, for obvious reasons. Um, so that's why they didn't discover that actually uh, it happens, neurogenesis happens in human beings um, until just a few years ago, because only then were they able to get dying cancer patients to take this particular stain, which they could then look at their brains on autopsy with. Yeah. Well, that's an expensive self-quantification, so no, uh, <laughs> no self-sacrificing there. But uh, I have noticed that there are short-term changes in cognitive function. We used uh, university-validated uh, studies, ones you're doubtless familiar with, things like finger tap time, to measure uh, bulletproof coffee made with the mold-free coffee beans versus non-tested coffee beans that, especially in the U.S., are universally uh, contaminated with some level or another. It's an unpredictable level. And what what I found was a statistically significant difference where, like, okay, people have these subtle changes in their day-to-day -day cognitive function. There's another technology called visual contrast sensitivity, where you can look at your eye's ability to discern very small changes in the color of gray. And if you're a little bit neurotoxic, then you don't see changes in gray that a normal brain will see. So I'm, I'm guessing that, and I'm saying this to, to see if you've heard of any of this, but also for the people listening, there's a lot of physicians and doctors and researchers who listen to Bulletproof Radio. Like someone out there probably already has the technology that can tell us whether what we're doing is causing these short-term behavior changes that are indicative of an increase in neurogenesis. I don't know for sure, but somebody has to know. Like, send me an email. Send us both an email. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There are lots of tests that indicate that probably neurogenesis is happening, but we don't know definitively until autopsy. But you're right. There are different cognitive tests. There are different emotional tests. Um, there are different body spatial awareness tests that... And there are even certain sorts of brain imaging, um, functional MRI, which will show cortical thickening, Yeah. but it won't definitively show neurogenesis. It may be just that synaptogenesis is happening and the increase in connections is happening. So, but probably, but we just don't know definitively unless we do an autopsy. That's a fair point. And I realized when we talked about neurogenesis, I, I meant to ask you to explain the difference between synaptogenesis and um, myelinogenesis. Can you walk through the different types of plasticity in the brain? I think everyone listening would, would appreciate just understanding the ways the brain can change. Sure, so synaptogenesis is the brain making new connections among the different brain cells. And we've known about this for a few decades now. It's kind of old news. It's how the brain is constantly rewiring itself. And myelinogenesis is you know creating new myelination. And actually the myelination doesn't even become fully present until our 50s or even early 60s. There's some parts of the brain that don't achieve full myelination until very late in life. And so this idea of the brain being on this just downhill course from our 20s on is not really true. There are some things in terms of fluid intelligence, in terms of rapid learning, that decrease slowly starting in our 20s and 30s. But there are many other things involving crystallized intelligence, involving empathy, involving planning, emotion regulation, executive function, which don't even reach their peak until 40s, 50s, some even early 60s. So there's myelogenesis, there's um, synaptogenesis, and then there's neurogenesis, which is the creation of new brain cells, new neurons. And that's the big game-changing discovery here. So I'm, I'm blown away when I read the research these days. You're just saying the brain is probably, maybe, maybe other than the liver, the most self-repairing, self-optimizing, changing organ in the body. Just, its capacity for change is amazing. But it's also unaware of, of damage. Like the liver will rebuild itself when it's damaged. The brain doesn't appear to know. We have all this research. Uh, Daniel Amen was just involved with this uh, movie. I want to call it Concussion, I think is the name. But the, he's done all of these specced brain scan images. Mm -hmm. And looking at the effect of these things, all the neurofeedback work that, that I've done is basically showing the brain where it's screwing up because it doesn't know. So the brain doesn't have awareness. But when it does get awareness or it gets the raw materials the way you're describing, it'll change rapidly, but it doesn't change in response to injury. It changes in response to environmental stimulus is, I think, mm -hmm. what, we're, what we're determining. 
Do you do work or have you looked at the applications of your research on injured brains? Um, not so much on okay. injured brains. Um, I work more with people who are experiencing some kind of cognitive decline or like they've lost their edge. Um, I work with a lot of people in the tech industry who are in their 40s and feeling like, you know, they just don't quite have the same edge that they did. And there's people in their 20s and 30s who are kind of nipping at their heels and they're getting stressed. So I work with that population and also sort of baby boomers who are aging, who are worried about cognitive decline. You know, Alzheimer's is a huge problem, right? Yeah. One in three seniors dies with either Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. And if present rates continue, 50% of people who reach age 85 will have Alzheimer's. And since we're expected, most of us expect to live to be 85, that's pretty scary. I, I'm, I'm working really hard on getting the Bulletproof Diet out into retirement homes in the retirement area because one of my personal missions is, is to help to reduce the incidence of Alzheimer's. And my 94-year-old my grandmother uh, was just there uh, for my birthday a little while ago. And uh, she uses uh, these kinds of principles. And, and when she's good about her fats, like she watches calculus videos on YouTube. And when she isn't paying attention to her diet, which does happen, then it's like she forgets to pay attention to her diet because the difference between, in, in an older brain like that, a proper nutritional profile with the right fats versus either the wrong fats or no fats and all the other stuff, it, it's, it's just night and day. It seems even more amplified as you get older. Yeah. That's right. And, and right now, Alzheimer's is the one disease, according to the Alzheimer's Association, for which there's currently no treatment, no cure, no prevention, no drug to do anything. The, wow. the pharmaceutical industry has spent billions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of clinical trials to come up with a drug that would help this. And so far, it's been a complete failure, an abject, total failure, zip, nothing, until now. I think it's because food works better than drugs, right? <laughs> oh, you said until yeah. now, do you have a drug? Or, or you said until now, that sounds pretty exciting. <laughs> You're... Until now. So most of the research is driven by drug companies yeah. or by academic researchers looking to discover the next big patentable billion dollar drug. Very little research gets done from a holistic perspective mm -hmm. because there's not much money to be made. Most of the things are free or yeah. readily available. But late last year, the Buck Foundation on Aging here in California, came out with a study that showed that using really kind of a simplified version of what's in the book, again, a body, heart, mind, spirit approach, they were able to reverse the cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's in seniors, many of whom had to stop working yeah. because their memory was so bad. What they found is that they actually could regain their memory and they went back to work for the two years that they followed them up in the study. And then a few months ago, in the British medical journal Lancet, there was a Finnish study of the first randomized controlled study of 1,200 at-risk seniors for cognitive decline that again showed, using a kind of simplified version of the holistic approach in the book, they were able to delay cognitive decline in an at-risk group of seniors. So right now it looks like a holistic approach is really the only thing that can help to prevent or delay Alzheimer's because it seems like it's a lifestyle disease more than anything else. And since it begins decades before we see symptoms, now is the time to start for all of us. Uh, prevention is a lot easier than waiting till it happens and then reversing it. Uh, I, I suppose I was fortunate to have become old when I was young, arthritis at 14, and cognitive decline in my mid-20s and obesity and insulin resistance and all that. So I did kind of get an early warning call, otherwise I probably wouldn't have, uh, have learned all the things I've learned. But it, it sucks to be old when you're young, and it must suck to be old when you're old. And I, I'm looking forward to not experiencing that. I, I'm expecting to be young when I'm old. So uh, eventually I'll get old, but that should be around 170. So. Well, Sounds good. <laughs> what about, uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is, is what about aging and, and longevity with the kinds of, of brain protective principles there? Do you have any data or any experience? Like, are we going to live longer if we do these things? Um, well, we're already living longer, but if our brain is going, what's the point? 
So <laughs> you don't want to be a bag of meat with no brain. Okay, that's a fair point. <laughs> so if your brain is working well, then probably every other system is working pretty well, right? Your cardiovascular mm-hmm. system is working well. Your blood your glucose metabolism is going to be good. So I think of this as sort of like the canary in the coal mine. That the brain is, um, if we can keep that young and alive, then the rest of the body will come along. That is is very well said. Uh, and if your brain isn't there, who really cares if your body's there, right? Well, we're coming up on the end of the interview, and I uh, I appreciate that you've shared all this all this information. And there's a question that I've asked every guest on the show, and, and one I'm really curious to hear from you about. It's it, given all the stuff you've learned, not just in your book and your professional work, but just in your life. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, "Look, I want to I want to be better at everything. I want to kick more ass. I want to perform better at whatever it is I'm going to do. What are the three most important things I need to know?" What would you say? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think that the first would be to find your center. Find your deep center. And I come from a spiritual orientation here, and so I think of that as really a spiritual center. And so it involves, I think, some kind of spiritual practice for most people. Um, And as we tune in and find our center, We also come across a lot of psychological issues, wounds, defenses. And so for most people, it's going to be a psycho-spiritual practice to really find their center. And number two, I think, would be when you find that source of inner guidance, to really discover what is your mission? Like, why are you here on Earth? Why are you, why did you incarnate here? You have certain skills, we're here to create something, to learn something, to produce something, to contribute something. What is, what is my mission? And once I have that, once I have my mission and I've got my center, everything else lines up, I think. And then the third thing would be to have a neurohealthy lifestyle, to have a lifestyle that promotes brain health and a high level of neurogenesis. And with that, I would think everything else would flow. Awesome. Well, thank you for for sharing that, and I I just can't or I, I don't know how to stress more for people listening how important the idea of taking care of your nervous system and your brain is, uh, because when that goes, uh, speaking from a personal experience, everything is hard, and no one likes struggle. So if you can keep the brain healthy, and I appreciate that you've put together a holistic view on this, uh, if you can keep the brain healthy you will make everything you do easier, even if it's just dealing with your mother-in-law at Christmas or whatever it is. Like everything is easier, including exercise, including study, including work, including relationships. And if the brain isn't healthy, everything's a struggle and that sucks. So I I appreciate that you've you've put all this work together. Where can people find you? What's the best URL? And the title of your book is like a whole paragraph. So you have to read that for me. Okay, The, the book is The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle. Subtitle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. And so you can go, if you want to read the first chapter, it's at the book's website, which is neurogenesisdiet.com. And you can order it from Amazon, you can order it from any bookstore, um, or my website, which is brandcourtright.com. That's B-R-A-N-T-C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T. And we will put this in the show notes. Everything that people um, heard today will be transcribed. And if you'd like to come and check out the interactive transcript that we put up on the website, this is a a big project, by the way. Um, Anyone listening can come in here. You can search for keywords in this entire conversation. You can find the segment. And if you click on the segment, we'll take you to the YouTube channel for Bulletproof to specifically that part of our conversation. So you can click the word and then hear the video associated with that word, which makes it really easy for you to get it in, whether you're a visual reader or you like the more auditory visual thing from video, we'll get it to you both ways and you can share it both ways with your friends because I think there's some really important knowledge in this episode. So Brant, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. Any final words? No, thank you for having me and thank you for spreading the word about neurogenesis. Have an awesome day. You too. If you liked today's episode, 
do me a favor, go out there and check out Brant's work. Uh, maybe take some extra omega-3 and not the vegetarian source stuff because as you just heard and as you probably read in some of the other posts on Bulletproof, the vegetarian omega-3 just doesn't work unless it's algae-based. That works, but eating flaxseed oil, no matter how much you eat, you're not gonna get enough of the good stuff from that. Have an awesome day and keep taking care of your brain. And while you're at it, check out Upgraded Aging, which is a formula that helps your brain because it helps your mitochondria, those little power plants that are richest in the brain. Have an awesome day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.